Take a look with me at Judges chapter 13. Turn to Judges 13. We're going to look at the story of Samson. The closest thing to a superhero story in the Bible, but it actually happened. When I was a kid, my grandparents, my, my mom's parents, out of the blue, gave my brother and me a go-kart. And we lived in the country, so we had lots of room to ramble around on this go-kart. This was a tremendous gift. This was, I mean, I know kids today get stuff like this all the time, but you know, when I was a boy, right, this wasn't a normal kind of thing. So we were like, wow. And although we had basically 40 acres to ramble around on, the best spot was right in front of our house where we had this long gravel road. And I figured out that if you, if you got at the beginning right where our house was and you headed toward the highway on that gravel road and you just put the pedal down as fast as it would go, and if I, right in the midst of this high speed, just slammed on the brakes and cranked that steering wheel to the side, I could spin out and spray gravel everywhere. And it was so cool. And one day when I was doing that, I saw something bouncing away from me. And I realized it was my left rear wheel. And I'm like, that can't be good. And fortunately, my parents knew a guy who owned a welding torch, and he came over and he welded that wheel back on, and I was back to my, you know, driving like a Hollywood stuntman kind of lifestyle, and then I broke it again. And I, it was either after the second or third time that my dad sat me down and he said, you know, what you're doing is not smart. Your grandparents gave you a, a tremendous gift, and you're showing an extreme lack of disrespect to them in not taking care of the gift they've given you. Why would they ever give you something nice ever again if all you're going to do is tear it up? Now, I, I respected my dad and I feared my dad in a very good way, not like an abusive way, but I, I had respect for my dad and I was not going to mouth off to him, but what I was thinking deep down inside was, well, that doesn't make any sense. They gave it to me, so it's mine, right? So I can do whatever I want to with it. Now that I'm older, and now that I've grown a little bit in my faith, I recognize that attitude for what it is, and it's pride. Now I know that in the English language, the word pride has some good connotations. We can use the word pride in a positive way. We can say, for instance, I'm really proud of my kids. I take pride in my work. I want to do my best. I have pride in my appearance. I want to look my best. None of those are negative things. But when the Bible uses the word pride, it uses it in a different sense than any of that. It uses it always, always in a negative way. The definition of pride is essentially, it's my life, I can do whatever I want to. I know I didn't create myself, I know this life is a gift from God, but He's given it to me so I can do whatever I want, right? And you can make the argument that the problem with society today is that our dominant ethic is if I'm not directly hurting someone else, I should be able to do whatever I want to. There should be no restrictions. I should be able to follow my definition of happiness and do whatever I want because it's my life. And that is the cause of so much pain because the Scripture tells us very clearly, no, it's actually not your life. Life is a gift and you were made. What is our theme verse for this year? Ephesians 2.10 You are God's masterpiece. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared ahead of time for you to do. God is a master artist. Picasso, Renoir, uh, Van Gogh, they made these masterpieces not so you could have them as a placemat or a coaster. They made them for a purpose. 
And it is a blasphemy to misuse that work of art. You are God's work of art. You were created for a purpose. And listen, when I say you're made for a purpose, I don't mean what you hope to grow up to be someday. Because a lot of you would say, I've already figured that out. I know what I'm supposed to be. I'm talking about there are specific good deeds God has for you right now to be engaged in. And you're not really living. You're not experiencing abundant life if you're not doing those good works. Because that's how we're wired. So we're looking at the story of Samson, the original most interesting man in the world. And this is a guy who, like I said, is the closest thing to a superhero in the Bible. I mean, he would fit in in the Justice League. He would fit in in the, the Avengers, except he actually lived. And if you were a kid growing up in ancient Israel or in even, even in New Testament Israel, I guarantee you, you would have loved the stories of Samson. You would have wanted to sit down with your parents and say, okay, Dad, tell me again about that time that Samson caught 200 pairs of foxes and tied their tails together and, and stuck a torch in between each tail and set them loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. That's a great story. Or tell me about that time when they had him trapped and he went out and he grabbed the gates of the city and he tore them up out of the ground and he picked them up over his head and everybody backed off. Tell me that story again, because here's Samson, physically the strongest man who ever lived. There's just absolutely no doubt. A man who was so bold, he actually taunted his enemies with rhymes. I mean, you think rappers get it down. He had it down. He would taunt in rhyme. He had his hair, this long hair and seven braids. He had it going on. And yet, and yet, just like all superheroes, including real ones, he had kryptonite. He had one fatal flaw, and his fatal flaw, his kryptonite, was his pride. So as we go into this story today, it's a great story. I'm going to enjoy telling it. I hope you enjoy hearing it. But don't hear it as a good story. I want you to ask yourself, what is my kryptonite? What is my struggle with pride? And what does that look like in my life? And how is it damaging me? And how is it hurting me and keeping me from accomplishing God's purpose? And how can it bring me down? So let's take a look at chapter 13, starting with verse 2, a little background. The Israelites at this time were under the oppression of a nation called Philistia. The Philistines were a warlike, savage, barbaric group of people. And the Israelites were, they were agrarian folks. They were farmers and shepherds. They weren't really up to a fight. And so they were dominated by this group, the Philistines, for 40 years, and along comes this man, Samson. Let's start at the very beginning of his life, verse 2 of chapter 13. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So right there, Samson's birth is announced by an angel. I don't think anybody in here can make that claim about themselves. And we learn some things very important right from the start. Number one, we learn Samson's life's purpose, which is he will begin his people's freedom. His deliverance, the deliverance of his people from the Philistines. We also learn that he is to be a Nazarite from birth. Now what does that mean? If you're not a real serious student of the Old Testament, this may be a new term to you. Um, back in the ancient world and even up into the New Testament, 
it was possible for one of the Jews, for one of God's people to say, I love the Lord like all other all the rest of God's chosen people, but I want to serve Him in a special way. So for the next year, for the next couple months, for the next decade, I'm going to set myself apart to be a special servant of God by taking a Nazarite vow. What that means is, until I have completed my obligation to God, whatever that might be, I won't cut my hair, I won't have any contact with anything dead, and I won't drink anything alcoholic. Those are, those are the three signs. So even in the New Testament era, we see the Apostle Paul go to the temple to get his hair cut. Why do you go to the temple to get your hair cut? Because Paul had made a vow. He had completed his vow and he goes to get his hair cut. So in the ancient world, you see someone, a man, walking around with this long hair, you know, oh, they're under special obligation to God. Do we still have these kinds of things? We don't have Nazarite vows. But some people feel like they're called to not work a regular vocation. My career is not going to be a lawyer, a teacher, a plumber, a carpenter, uh, uh, whatever. I'm, I'm called to serve God with my life. And so they get ordained or they get licensed by a church. We come around them, lay hands on them and say, we're setting you apart for special service. Guess what? There's another kind of vow we take. And this is something all of us take once we become believers in Jesus Christ. Once we give our lives to Him, what do we do? We go up into that baptistry and, and a minister baptizes us into the faith. It's not magic water. It doesn't wash away our sins. Jesus' blood did that. What we're doing when we, baptize, when we get baptized is we're making a vow before God and before our new church family. This is why in, in, in our church we, we require this, that all of our members have been baptized as believers by immersion because we're making a vow together to say, I'm no longer myself. I am no longer the person I once was. My whole life belongs to Jesus. I am dead, and now a new me is here. And this is what Samson did from birth. For the rest of his life, he was to follow that vow and those three obligations that would remind him of who he really belonged to. Now let's skip ahead to Samson's adulthood. In chapter 14, verse 1, Samson's already grown. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. Now if this was just an ordinary superhero story, this would be the part where you say, Oh, good for him. Superman found his lowest lane, right? Batman found his whoever. Uh, Rachel Dawes, isn't that the one? I mean, he's found his soulmate. This is what we all hope for. And, and they're going to live happily ever after after he saves her from Dr. Doom or Lex Luthor or whoever. But there's a problem. The woman Samson has found is a Philistine. Now let's be clear about something. God is not racially exclusive. If he was, then we wouldn't be celebrating people like Ruth, who was from Moab, or Rahab, who was from Jericho. We wouldn't see them as godly women and women of, of, of heroic faith. It's not about race. It's about God saying, when you marry someone, make sure they trust in me. Otherwise, they will draw you away from me. And you both will be destroyed. Samson's problem was, he didn't care about any of that. When his parents said, hey, listen, why don't you marry somebody from the tribe of Dan? Or at least an Israelite. Why do you have to go to one of these uncircumcised Philistines? 
They're saying, don't you care about what God says? And look at Samson's response. Now, in the NIV, it says, she is right, she's the right one for me. In the original Hebrew, and this is borne out in, in some other translations, he basically says, she looks good in my eyes. So essentially, he's saying, I don't care about all that. Do you see the way she looks? Do you see the, the curve of her body? Do you see her hair? Do you see her eyes? She looks good to me. I don't care about anything else. Essentially, he's saying, this is my life. This is what I want. No one can tell me what to do. So later, Samson is on his way to see his new girlfriend in Timnah. And as he's on his way, a lion comes roaring out of the forest and attacks him. Now, any other man would be dead. Samson, though, stands his ground grabs the lion and rips it in half. Can you imagine? Now, later on, Samson is walking back to Timna with his parents. He's taking mom and dad to meet the new girlfriend, the future wife. And along the way, he remembers the lion and he thinks, I want to go see that lion. He doesn't tell his parents. He just says, I'll catch up with you. He goes aside. He finds the carcass of the lion, probably saying to himself, I want to see this again and remind myself what an awesome guy I am. Look what I did. But when he gets there, the, the, the rotting carcass of this, carcass of this lion contains a, a beehive. Bees have built a home inside this body. Samson reaches into the hive and scoops out some of the honey. Because when you're Samson and you're a man's man, a few bee stings don't stop you, right? Scoops out the honey, he eats some, he catches up to his parents, he gives them some of the honey, and it says very clearly, but he did not tell them that he had gotten the honey out of the lion's carcass. Quick question, why wouldn't he tell them? If it was me, I'd want him to know I tore a lion in half. Why wouldn't he tell them? Because the lion was dead. And he had just touched a dead creature. And he had just broken one of the three obligations of his Nazarite vow. See, here's something a lot of people don't understand. Samson's strength wasn't because of his long hair. Samson's strength wasn't because of his big biceps. Samson's strength was because, as it says in chapter 13, verse 25, the Spirit of the Lord was stirring inside of him. There are even people who have a theory that Samson looked like an ordinary guy. He wasn't a big, massive dude with, with huge muscles, uh, but he was just strong because of God. But when you disregard God, when you choose to go your own way, when you say, this is my life and I can do what I want with it, why should God continue to subsidize that? Samson's already skating on thin ice. But guess what happens next? He throws a wedding feast. A wedding feast in those days was different than a wedding reception today. Essentially, a, a wedding reception today is a time for a young couple and their parents to get into massive debt for a party that most people later regret. Okay? Can we be honest? That, that's a wedding reception today. And guess what? If you just call the preacher, call me, I'll show up at your house, I'll marry you for free. You don't have to get into debt. I, this is just a side thing. It's not what I'm preaching on. I'll show up at your house and marry you for free. And you can spend that money on a honeymoon or a down payment on your house. Listen. Be sensible. Okay, back to the sermon. So, in those days, a wedding feast was you gather the whole village together you take your bride into your father's tent. You consummate the marriage. And then you come out and everyone throws a week-long party with the best food, the best wine, the best jokes, the best music, with everything for a solid week. Samson throws this party, which was 
standard issue. I mean, this is what was done. Jesus' first miracle was what? He made water into wine at a wedding feast. This was not an evil thing, except Samson was under obligation to God. He is not to touch any alcohol. The, whole, the very name wedding feast in Hebrew, the word literally means a place to drink. Samson has now broken the second of his three commands. His three obligations. The three signs of his special vow before the Lord. And in the midst of this wedding, it's not enough fun for Samson. He's one of these guys. He's got to be competitive. He's got to make something more interesting. And so he creates this contest. He says, listen, you Philistines, you new in-laws of mine, I will give you a riddle, and if you can solve my riddle, then I will give you 30 changes of clothes. 30 wardrobes, essentially. And if, I, if you can't guess my riddle, you'll give me 30 sets of clothes. And so they say, okay, lay it on us. We're Philistines, you're Israelites, we're way smarter than you, surely we can solve your riddle. He then gives them the riddle, and of course it rhymes. He says, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. What am I talking about? So they work on this for several days. And they begin to cheat. They go to Samson's new bride, and they say, you better find this out for us, because if you don't find out for us, we're going to kill you and your whole family. And she begins to cry in front of Samson and weep before him and beg him and plead him. And oh, if you really love me, you would tell me the secret. And don't you know, that was exactly the honeymoon he was hoping for, right? So, so here's what happens. Samson finally gives in, and he tells her the truth. Now look what happens in verse 18. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. And ladies, haven't you always wanted a man to call you that? I mean, isn't that, aren't those the words you long to hear? Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. He went down to Ashkelon, which is one of the cities of the Philistines. He struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went up to his father's house. And that's the end of Samson's marriage. They give his, his wife to uh, his best man, and he goes back home. And now, Samson is public enemy number one. He no longer can travel in the Philistine territories. And now the Philistines, who have ruled Israel for 40 years, and have basically left them alone as long as Israel went ahead and gave them lots of heavy taxes, now they decide we need to invade again. And the Israelites, they, they come out and they say, why are you invading us? Why are you burning our cities? We're, we're paying our taxes. We're doing what we're told. And they say, well, we want Samson. He killed 30 of our men. Bring him to us. So Samson agrees. He says, fine, bind me. Give me to the Philistines. And we'll see what happens. Now, the rest of that story is in verse, 15, or verse 14 of chapter 15. So chapter 15, verse 14. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. You notice that. It doesn't say his triceps flexed. It says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone and the place was called Ramoth-Lehi, which means Jawbone Hill. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst 
and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. Now, two things I want to point out. This is not ordinary thirst. This is not, man, I just had a workout. I wish I had a bottle of, uh, of Gatorade. This is, I'm about to die. I am about to collapse. I am dehydrated. My strength is gone. And either I'm going to die of dehydration or they're going to come upon me and kill me. So, Lord, deliver me. The second thing I want to point out is the first time, this is the first time we have ever seen Samson call upon the name of God. Here he is, this person who was, his birth was announced by an angel. He's supposed to deliver Israel. And he spends his whole life thinking about everything but God until the wheel falls off of his go kart. And then, and then he says, Daddy, can you please help me? It says next. Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. So the spring was called Enhakor and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So it seems that this moment, this moment of rare humility, this moment when finally he cried out to God for help, seems to have done something to him. And for the next 20 years, Samson actually leads Israel. Up to this point, everything has been about Samson. And he's been flying solo. All of his great and mighty deeds have been done by himself. He's never led, a tro led troops into battle. He's never helped his people in any way. But now he leads the people. Now he stands as a judge, as a deliverer. And the Philistines are afraid to invade anymore. And, and Samson guides his people because he's their mighty warrior and no one can mess with him. But then, because here's the thing with pride. Pride does not die easily. It rears its ugly head again when he meets a young woman named Delilah. And Delilah is a Philistine, of course. He falls for her. Head over heels. Seven braids over heels. He is madly in love with this woman. And the Philistines recognize their opportunity. And they say to her, listen, here's all this silver. Basically 140 pounds of silver, which would be a lot today. But in those days was enough to set up uh, uh, Delilah and her descendants for generations to come. And it's all yours. All you have to do is tell us how we can defeat, defeat this man, Samson. Because his strength is clearly not in his physical body. It comes from somewhere else. How can we, how can we get the favor of his God off of him so that we can take him out and then reestablish our control over the people of Israel? And she begins to ask him questions. And, and pry into his life. And he gives her false answers. He's toying with her. He's enjoying the opportunity that it brings him because every time he tells her something and she sets him up for destruction, he can just fight his way out of the problem. He gets to kill more Philistines. It's fun for Samson. Look at chapter 16, verse 16. Chapter 16, verse 16. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. Doesn't that sound like a great relationship? So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. So Samson's a big, strong guy, but he's not a dumb jock. He knows what's going on. He knows what's at stake. He, he understands, I've already touched something dead. I've already drank alcohol probably multiple times, if we could be honest. 
the only thing I have left where I've still been obedient to God is my hair. If I take that away, if I disobey Him in that, then He'll leave me and you'll be able to do whatever you want. So Delilah tells the Philistine. She waits till he falls asleep. She has his head shaved as he sleeps. And look at verse um, 20. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. Let me ask you something. Why on earth would he think after he has given his secret away to this deceitful woman, he knows what she's going to do, why would he assume, God's still going to be with me. I'm still going to be able to live through this. Because that's how we are. In our pride, we think, I've watched other people do stupid things and they pay the consequences, but that will never happen to me. God loves me too much. I'm, I'm living a charmed life. I will never bear the consequences of my pride and my foolishness. But Samson did. My friends, I'm not going to ask you today if you have a problem with pride. Because we all do. Every single one of us. What I'm going to ask you is, what does your problem with pride look like? How is pride keeping you from living out God's purpose in your life? How will pride ultimately bring you down if you don't address it? Because for some of us, if we were honest, we'd say, well, my pride is manifested in my sexuality and how I just I, I know what's right and what's wrong, but I don't care because here's what I want and here's what feels good, and so I'm going to do what feels good to me. And some, for some of us, it's, it's quite honestly, we don't want to admit it, but it's an addictive behavior. Because we know we drink too much, or we know we, should be, we shouldn't be putting that substance in our bodies, or we know we shouldn't be visiting that website and looking at those images, but the truth is, it's my life and I can do what I want to with it, right? And, and no one can tell me that I can't stop, because I can stop whenever I want. For some of us, it's in our relationships. There's that person we need to forgive, and we're just, I don't want to forgive that person. And there's that relationship we need to reconcile, but, but that means I have to put myself out there and and admit that I care about them and I have to make an effort and I want them to make an effort. Or, or it's, I, I know that she needs me to be this kind of husband, but I'm waiting for her to start living up to my expectations first and then I'll give a little something. My life. For some of us, it's our money or our time. We've got so precious little of both of those. We don't want to give those. We don't want to sacrifice. For some of us, it's our commitment our commitment to God, and we would say, what's the problem? I, I believe all the right things, and I, I go to church as often as I can, and I, I say no to all those big vices, so why do I have to commit myself fully to God? Why do I have to be of use to Him? You see, your struggle with pride may not be as cinematic as Samson. Maybe, maybe your struggle with pride won't destroy your family, or it won't leave your life in shambles, but maybe it's something a little more prosaic. Maybe it will result in a life that's really, really safe, really, really tame, that's all about doing what brings you prosperity and peace so you can just enjoy the people you like. And that's just as big a tragedy as what happened to Samson. Because God made you for more than that. God made you for something Incredible. Consider the consequences. 
And some of us are, are living in the wake of bad decisions. Some of us can tell the stories, yes, I ruined my marriage. Yes, I destroyed my family. Yes, I wrecked my, my reputation. I, I ruined my witness with this lost person that, that I could have led to faith, but not. I, I couldn't because of the way that I lived. I, I messed up my career. I messed up my finances because of my pride. You know, there was a day when that wheel fell off of the, the go-kart and my dad said, that's enough. It's done. And he pushed that freewheel go-kart into the shed and I think it's still there. Last time I looked, it's still there. And, and the really sad part, I wasn't just hurting me. I have a brother who's four years younger than me. That meant he couldn't run, ride the go-kart anymore either because of me. Because I thought, it's mine. And I can do with it what I want. See, your pride never just hurts you. Your pride always hurts someone else. Right before we got into this, Nathan and the band sang a song about how it's not enough. You can gain all this world offers. You can be somebody like Samson who had the world by the tail. But it's not enough. You want to hear some good news? Here's good news. God doesn't care what you did to your go-kart. He can fix it. He can make it right. God can put things back together. God can still use you even after divorce, even after a, a ruined family, even after a broken reputation, even after financial disaster, bad decisions, prison. God can still use you. His plans are not destroyed. Look at chapter 16, verse 23. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to celebrate saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. This is the man who was born and destined to lead his people to deliverance. Now he is the, the object of praise to a pagan God. Didn't work out the way Samson while they were in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can fill the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. So what you need to picture is sort of a U-shaped building so, so in the middle, in this courtyard, this open area is Samson. And, and in the stands, underneath the, the covering, all on three sides are the Philistines. Thousands of them. And so many more that they are sitting on the rooftops. Samson is, is now standing uh, up against some pillars. And it says in verse 28, Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O Sovereign Lord, remember me. Oh God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Is that the best prayer ever been prayed? Absolutely not. This is a prayer of vengeance, but it's the best he can do. This is coming out of Samson's real heart. And it's the second time, as far as we know, the second time he is called on the name of God. The second and final time. 
Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. You know, if you read Hebrews chapter 11 today, the story, that, that chapter that describes great men and women of faith, Samson's in there. He's listed as a great hero of faith. And yet, and he lived out his purpose. You think about it. He began the deliverance of the Philistines, or of the Israelites from the hand of the Philistines. But if, if Samson could stand here today, I guarantee you he would say, don't be like me. Don't make the mistake I made. Don't wait until the very end of your life to get things straightened out and finally start living for God. Because think of all the good He could have done. Think of all the ways He could have brought freedom to His people. Glory to God. Think of all the peace He could have enjoyed. Just following God's plan. Here's the thing. Jesus came into the world he was even stronger than Samson. Samson killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. Jesus could have destroyed all of creation by winking his eye or snapping his fingers. Samson was committed to getting what he wanted out of life and only called on God when he absolutely needed it. Jesus was a man of joy, a man who loved God and others, and he brought joy to the whole wide world. Samson died in disgrace and he took thousands with him to the grave. Jesus died in disgrace and he took millions with him to glory. Samson lived a life that was governed by prideful selfishness. Jesus lived a life that was ruled by courageous, selfless love. Whose life are you trying to emulate? See, if you're young here today, now's the time to decide I am not going to follow my pride. I'm not going to follow my flesh. I'm going to follow the plan of God, even though sometimes it's going to make me seem odd. If you're in your middle years, now's the time to say, I need to recognize how pride is destroying my relationships and my relationship with God and get it straightened out today and put Him first. If you're older, you need to recognize, I'm still here for a reason. God's already taken some of my friends home to heaven. He hasn't taken me yet. That's because He's got a purpose for me here and I need to be fulfilling it. That's where life is found. And for all of us, especially people who've made mistakes, remember the words of that song that we sang earlier today, by Your Spirit, I will rise from the ashes of the king. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. Think about Samson. After he lost everything, God can still use you no matter what you've done how badly pride has destroyed you. God's bigger than all of that. Jesus died for your sins so you could live out the life God created you for. Let's not waste that like Samson did. Let's live every moment of it to the fullest.